is the big ponder. Sunday, March 29th, 2020. Two weeks after the coronavirus was declared a global pandemic, I threw my first virtual birthday party. It was March, and so, in the spirit of spring, I bought flowers, draped fabrics over the sofa, and wore pink. Friends gathered from around the world in a series of video screens, smiling, blowing horns, and kisses. That all of you and all of your families stay super healthy, that we stay close while staying apart, and that we continue to be in touch. And I am so grateful for all of you, and I really have the utmost gratitude and love for each of you. So thank you guys so much for coming. We love party. you, BQ. Love you. Love you. It was a wonderful birthday party, but once everyone left the Zoom screen, I felt a tinge of loneliness and a sense of distance that has only deepened with time. As I began thinking about friendships after that party, why this distance from these non-familial relationships hurt so much, I stumbled onto a 15-part radio series by British academic Thomas Dixon. In the age of Facebook friends, he set out to ask what exactly was the history of friendship. Thomas Dixon told me recently that if he could, he would update the series with a new chapter. If I could do a kind of a bonus episode on it, it would be about connection and contagion. And because connection and contagion are essentially the same word. They're about touching each other and touching another person, making contact with another person physically. Uh, and the way that the idea that other people are sources of contagion, which is so potentially terrifying and has put this this distance between people and the way that that militates against this most fundamental urge to connect as in E.M. Forster's motto you know only connect so connection and contagion would be would be episode 16 if I got to make one it's her birthday just say hi hey Gabby happy birthday (laughs) okay go get your breakfast (laughs) <laughs> are you in your studio right now i'm in it man um, creighton built this studio ball he he <laughs> yeah that's amazing garage has made a studio as national borders sealed and we disappeared behind masks in 2020 and 2021 the golden threads of friendship endured technology could suddenly transcend reality in hd video and digital sound people called connected laughed cried and shared their fears with each other with more ease than ever. You want to see the view? Yeah. Ooh, beautiful. <laughs> but you guys, I've been watching Bridgerton, <laughs> and have you been watching it? Brooklyn-based broadcast journalist David Gura reunited for long Zooms with friends from home in North Carolina. And I remember those first Zooms would go on for hours, you know, four, five hours, and, you know, they were fueled by drink and excitement at seeing each other, each other after a long lapse. This morning I was thinking about um, that random jazz cafe in Paris that we started dancing with. Yes, yeah. Oh my God, that's one of my favorite memories. That was so weird and so lovely. And I think it either started or finished with us eating an entire block of butter together. Yes, (laughs) yeah. And we were there with Jimmy and Richard and how unexpected. Wait, Richard was there? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yes. And Jim, and we were dancing like in this. It was literally like something out of Aristocats in the back. Through all this pandemic, it was very, very important for me to have the ability and the possibilities to share my thoughts and feelings over telephone, over video conferencing tools, whatever, and being connected to a soul that is very important for me. Oliver Brode and I met 10 years ago in Berlin as professional colleagues working in radio. Uh, hello, Oliver, this is Bilal. Hi from Berlin. We've become dear friends and edited this program together, virtually. I feel a kind of, a lot of strength and power coming from this connection and also sharing other people's problems and other people's fears and angers about this pandemic situation And being not able to see the other one, but to imagine the other one. Because you know your good friend so well that you can imagine how he would say that and how he, he is sitting there. So this imagination of someone being very close to me, seeing his picture while we talk, is building up a very, very important emotional stability factor in my life. And every conversation I have is one where at some stage we're talking about our feelings, ourselves, our emotional state. And that is not something I would say I do a lot of in, in non-pandemic times. Designer Anjana Das also lives in Berlin. Because you, you only want to bear your soul or your worries or your, your insecurities to, to people who are really um, that my definition of, you know, like the, the sanctuary kind of friends. For me, I've really stopped talking to people who I do not trust with my life. The conversations that required so much effort and often so much brutal honesty, clarified friendships. Some became stronger, and others faded. As I began asking friends about their own friendships, I discovered that many people turned over this year to old friends. I have been friends with Melissa since college, and honestly, I don't know the year. It would be before 93. 1989. Yeah. Uh, well, I think Marissa and I have known each other since 1993. Is that correct? 94. And I've known Creighton, oh my God, since like... I've known each other for at least 25 years. Sort of. 27 years of knowing each other, I've got to make sure that I speak to Jody because I know that his perspective, his lived experience is going to help me in understanding my own. Oh, thank you. Relationships seasoned and weathered with memories lived in friendships. I mean, I have called her crying from Dhaka. I have called her crying from Brighton. I have called her crying from Florence, from Rome. I have called her crying from so... She is... All right, I mean, Kendall and I met in third grade. So 30 years. <laughs> 30 years. 32 for me, because I'm, I'm like a year older than most of them. But I also started thinking about the vocabulary of friendships, how we learn the idea of friendship. What exactly are these relationships? Who do I call a friend and why? Bina Kamlani is a literary editor and novelist in New York City. She thinks deeply and professionally about language. I'm going to look at this word friendship. What does it mean really? So I thought, okay, we all know what this is, but try defining it. Um, apart from these really simplistic words, love, affection, devotion, companionship, The complexities of true friendship are just hard to define, you know? It's hard to pin them down. <laughs> First thing that comes to my mind is um, 
an old schlager from the 30s or 20s from the comedian harmonists uh, a cappella band maybe you know them ein freund ein guter freund das ist das beste was es gibt auf der welt ein freund ein guter freund das ist das beste was es gibt auf der welt ein freund bleibt immer freund auch wenn die ganze welt zusammenfällt and i don't know the text anymore And the translation of it would be, and the translation of it would be, a friend, a good friend, is the best thing that is there in the world. A friend always stays your friend, even if the whole world collapses. The collapse of the world as we knew it led me to return to the city where I met Oliver Brode, who you just heard singing in German. I met Oliver during a one-year exchange program in 2011, sponsored by the Bosch Foundation. Before I moved to Germany with 19 other Americans that year. We had an orientation session in Washington, D.C. What I imagined would be a straightforward introduction to international exchange programs turned out instead to be an emotional guide on how Americans and Germans were not natural friends. This is the story of the coconut and the peach. And we were all in some hotel conference room and they described Americans as peaches, like very soft and sweet on the outside, but like a pit inside <laughs> like hard potentially and I think the real metaphor there was more like it's hard to get much further than the surface with Americans even though they seem real friendly on the outside and then with Germans the comparison was coconuts so they're hard and scratchy and, and <laughs> difficult on the outside but lovely on the inside and like once you're in you're in and Jessica, what did you remember about that discussion around how not to make friends or to make friends? It's really funny to me because um, they really do think that we're fake. You know, they think that like us going around and, and being like, hey, how are you? Like, how's your day? They don't think we mean any of that, you know, which I think there's maybe a little bit of truth to that. But I think also we are genuinely nice. <laughs> like, I don't know. I kind of think that. So it seems a little bit of a stretch. Um, the co Coconut metaphor does make some sense to me for Germans because they are a little bristly. Anna, it's your turn. It seemed to me like they were kind of trying for us not to be discouraged by that kind of interaction. So they were trying to help us understand that not very many people will get into the coconut at all. It was a funny session, but lessons were learned. I'd never really given the abstract idea of friendship much thought. To what extent did I have an American idea of friendship? To what extent was it actually rooted in my Pakistani heritage? Surely we're all experts on friendships and know what we're doing. After we finally arrived in Germany, I began language school, where my teacher Stefan Andres explained that this more formal German culture of friendships included linguistic distinctions too. Unlike the American word friend, used casually across categories, the German word Freund was reserved for a small batch of relationships. The majority of people could be catalogued without guilt, more precisely, as colleagues or acquaintances. Bekannte. A word that's since become one of my favorite German words. Someone you know from work, or you know from maybe your, your neighborhood, but it's not a direct neighbor, you know from other interactions. Bekannte. I have become much more rigorous and defensive and territorial about friendship as I've aged. 
<laughs> so like I, I think that made me understand the German model or the German paradigm a little bit more of friendship. Mina Hanna is an Egyptian American composer and musicologist living in Berlin. So like as I've gotten older, I have been a bit more tentative and hesitant as to who I can refer to as a friend and who isn't a friend it, in America, in Germany. You know, it doesn't really matter where I am. During the pandemic, my American friends Melissa Gray and Shireen Abdelnabi described how they too began making lists and distinctions between friends. I have totally written a bunch of people off. <laughs> Well, it's just, you know, I don't have, I, I'm, I'm here with the three ring circus and, and then I have work and then I have my, fa my extended family. And so, you know, during this time of the pandemic, what I have done is I've, I, I don't do this consciously, but as I sit here and think about it, it's like I immediately drew lines. For the ones that, that didn't make the cut, a lot of it is, again, just not getting what I felt like I was putting into it. You know, the old cliche of just growing apart or growing into different people. They're also the people you keep in your life for, you know, old time's sake, or just because there's a word for it in Arabic called Ashra, which is sort of the history that's there. So people stay in your life for that history, but maybe you're not really um, in touch anymore, or maybe you don't have that much in common, but you have that shared history. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it makes I, uh, history is sort of the shorthand, but it's that that I don't. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> I love that. Arguments over politics, over quarantine, over childcare, led to unexpected tensions in friendships, and some distances proved difficult to bridge. Despite all the digital connections, I myself watched some friendships fade to black. Again, my former Berlin teacher Stefan Endres about the German concept of Freundschaft. You know, it's a, it's a value that can also be, be hurt, be broken. Yeah, so it's like verletzte Freundschaft, like a hurt friendship. So we wouldn't just say, okay, well, we're not friends anymore. Yeah, wir sind keine Freunde mehr, okay. Uh, but there's also the feeling of verletzte Freundschaft, which means, you know, uh, we were trusting, uh, we were, you know, we were sharing uh, ideas and activities and thoughts and values and something broke this bond. That's also like das Band der Freundschaft. I'm Thomas Dixon, and I'm a professor of history at Queen Mary University of London, where I work at the Centre for the History of the Emotions. So for quite a long time now, I've been thinking about feelings and emotions and how they've changed in the past and how they've changed over time. And a few years ago, I made a series for BBC Radio 4 called 500 Years of Friendship. Uh, and the title is pretty self-explanatory. And can I ask you why you decided to trace friendship in particular and, and to, of course, take it as far back as the Renaissance period? Because in a way, I feel it's one of those words that we all think we understand. I know how to be friends. Everyone has friends. But yeah. you chose to sort of give it this sort of um, much more thorough exploration. Yes. Well, actually, only um, this week, I'm, I'm really ashamed to admit this. Did I, did I look up the etymology of friend, which, as you may know, comes from... Uh, an old English word meaning free. And so, in fact, a friend is someone who frees you or, or sets you free, which is a really lovely image, which I hadn't um, come across before. But that's going back more than more than 500 years. The reason for the approach we took in that series was 
we'd been used to the idea of Facebook friends, uh, which seemed to have changed the meaning of that word friend when you could have, um, in some people's cases, not mine, um, you know, several hundred or even one or two thousand uh, friends on, on Facebook. Well, you know, I was really interested in, I became very interested in the subject actually in 2012 because I moved to Germany for some time and and as part of our training, one of the things that they talked to us about was how difficult it was for Americans to make friends in Germany. Oh my goodness. And, um, it was, it was, a, it was a quite a quite goofy training exercise, but they, they sort of told us that Americans were like peaches, warm and fuzzy on the outside, but sort of, you know rather sort of empty and, and pitiful <laughs> on the inside and that and that um and that Germans were like coconuts you know very hard on the exterior but once you once you kind of unlocked the shell you could this wonderful you know juice of friendship could flow well those um, are both super weird images to start with <laughs> really weird yes peaches and coconuts exactly yeah. um, and, okay. and and so it sort of created this idea that that you know the cold reserve of Germans that was the stereotype that maybe Americans had in going was was just kind of holding a different and perhaps more demanding idea of friendship within it. A- absolutely. And there have certainly been studies that have shown um, that friendship, you know, varies around the world. Obviously, there are different words for it um, in every language. And, and some of those are more similar to the English friend and some of those more more different. Every culture will have an idea that's a bit like friendship, but it will vary as to how many you have, how important they are. And in cultures which are perhaps more traditional and put more emphasis on the family, then the notion of the friend might be less prominent. In your series, you identify these three systems of friendship, Mm. right? the three kind of distinct forms in which friendship has been expressed and, and tends to be organized. Yeah, absolutely. So so looking across the, the centuries and trying to organize the different varieties of friendship that that we came across and all the different experts that we spoke to and, and the periods that we looked at, it seemed to me that we'd seen friendship go through three phases or three different types, all of which are still with us to some extent. So if you go back to pre-modern times uh, in medieval, early modern Europe, the vast majority of people will live in small villages and will live in proximity to a lot of people that they are closely related to. So that the first category is kind of familial or kinship uh, relationships, which are des- described as, as friends, but we might describe as, as family primarily. So that's one. Then the second sense is perhaps a slightly more modern sense of friendship, which is instrumental so that your friends really, you're not related to them by blood. You may not have a very emotional relationship with them, but they are useful to you and you to them. They're your allies. They support you, maybe in business, politics, if you like a kind of self-interested relationship. And I call that instrumental friendship to draw attention to that practical and, if you like, self-serving nature of it. And then thirdly is what I think is certainly in the culture I grew up in, the dominant sense of friend, which is like BFF, best friend forever, the emotional friendship. And that's the one that we inherit from Renaissance writers, classical Greek and Roman writers, for whom friendship, in most of those those historical examples between men, was held up as the highest form of spiritual and intellectual connection that you could have. It was a meeting of minds, a marriage of minds, some sources said. Um, And that emotional sense that you find your soulmate in your friend is, as I say, one that is is quite dominant in our culture in the West, but it's not the only only sense. And I think all three senses still persist today. 
Well, I, I, I want to ask you now about the sort of year that we've been through, because some of the essays that people have been writing and think pieces about the year and the psychology of the year, and I suppose the emotional inner experience of the year, have dealt with loneliness and, and the kind of loneliness epidemic that goes alongside this disease. And I wonder how you've been kind of observing and, and, and reading and thinking about this, this time in that regard. I guess one thing that's really brought out was the difference that people still very much experience and are aware of between online connection and physical in-person connection. I mean, that's, I, I suppose, one of the overridingly obvious things about the last year is that people have found online connection, by and large, to be a very unsatisfactory alternative. So the, I guess that demonstrates there's a limit to the extent to which technology can take our friendships and put them entirely online because the evidence would seem to show that most people find that not at all um, satisfying emotionally. My interest in Zooming with friends has faded. I miss my friends desperately, in physical form, in nearness I can see and I can feel. My name is Ranti Islam. I'm an educator, I used to be a journalist, and way back I used to be an astrophysicist. And my feeling is that whenever I, I speak to friends, the talking is the thinking for me. So this is where I get my ideas. This is what drives me, what inspires me. Digital technologies um, you know, that have been hailed as you know, connecting the world, reconnecting you to your friends, um, they haven't really delivered for me um, because suddenly... I felt, you know, I was aware that it's just more than exchanging like waveforms by digital channels, but being able also to um, look other people in the eye, catch the vibes, the kind of, you know, haptic feedback, if you like, in whatever uh, slight way there is, and that's all we're missing. And in retrospect, I guess I realized that's part of having proper conversations beyond just exchanging words. And I mean, it's also been a year where I've thought, very intensely about you know what happens to this culture of touch and us being close with each other you know mark oram leclay is a photographer and for the past several years he's been documenting the physically intimate friendships between men in india in contrast to his own german background he says he was deeply moved by the tenderness and physical expressions of affection between men in india from holding hands to speaking more openly about their affection for one another. You know, I grew up in Germany, but with the French relatives, I would kiss the, the whole family, including the boys and the men, like twice when we would see each other. But then also thinking about, you know, India and how along with Western culture becoming more of a dominant force in India, it made me wonder if that may push further towards... Um, killing those gestures, you know, and those um, expressions of friendship. It, it certainly makes you think about what makes a friendship, you know, and, and how to take care of it, how to maintain proximity. Yeah, Bilal, you were asking if this past year has also helped redefine, like, our our idea of friendship, right? 
And I think it has for me, and this is going to maybe come out sounding a little bit weird, but if you think of friendship as you would, like, kind of also, like, a romantic relationship, like, when people are gone, do you miss them, (laughs) you know? Like, I think this year has helped cement that. Like, when you're thinking about people and you go, gosh, like, I miss that person. I miss connecting with them. I miss hanging out with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really cements in your mind, well, that's Mm -hmm. a friendship I want to keep, you know? That's a friendship I want to foster. And then there are others where you go, gosh, like, I totally kind of forgot about that person, right? And and then you go, okay, well, maybe I don't have to spend too much time on that one in the first place. Um, All those people that you just kind of interact with casually where you're not putting a lot of energy into it, they're, they're not there now. You know, you just there's no casual interactions and so everything takes effort everything you have to put energy into it and at least speaking for myself um i'm at capacity basically all the time now so to be (laughs) putting energy into something you have to really want it to be there you know so you make choices every day with work and your kids and your home and friendship it is work but i will say that for me, it's the best kind of work. I just love my friendships. Um, And during this time, this horrible, isolated time that we were never prepared for, that we couldn't have been prepared for, had it not been for all these friends calling in from everywhere, you know, are you okay? How is it? What's happening? Uh, I know that there are protests. I know that this is happening. I know that that's happening. Are you all right? Don't go out. Don't do this. You know, if it weren't for all these people calling in every weekend, wondering about you and how you are and, and that they care enough to pick up the phone and call and say, I'm thinking about you. That is so meaningful in the context of our lives today. Well, I think certainly future historians of emotions uh, will look back on this as a major turning point in the history of modern emotional life because it has brought all these things into focus. Friendships have been like the flickering candles in the darkness of this year, ensuring there is light both during and at the end of this tunnel. One of my newest friendships is with my nephew. He turned 11 during the pandemic, and he stayed in touch with his own friends on Zoom and through gaming systems. Zen, can you come see for a second? I'm going to say, hi, I'm Bilal. I'm Zen. <laughs> okay, so Zen, I'm doing this project about friendship. I want to know, what is your definition of a friendship? I don't know why you chose this project. It just overcomplicates everything for you. <laughs> like, you choose your friends, there's nothing to it. You like you someone and you guys have a good relationship. You find stuff that you like in common and everything. And you like make fun jokes with each other. And that's just all it is. I don't know why you're trying to overcomplicate things and say, like, what breakout friendship and do they come back and all that. Just relax, okay? <laughs> it's just people who are nice to you and people who are... Like, just, you feel that are, you feel safe being around and comfortable. Comfort around. Point made and taken. Perhaps friendship is indeed not so complicated. But sometimes the simplest truths can feel like the toughest lessons to learn. I certainly feel closer after this year to a definition and a recognition of true friendship. In closing, I'd like to thank all the friends who shared their story with me. 
In the United States, Anna Schmitz, Willa Obel, Jessica Lewis, and Bina Kamlani. The friend couples you heard included Anusha Hussain and Shireen Abdelnabi, Chelsea Crawford and Alex Tyson, Melissa Gray and Don Benedetto, David Gura and Creighton Irons, Kendall Rice and Crystal Hawk, Marissa Masria Katz and Jody Lambert. In Germany, Mark Oram Leclay, Mina Hanna, Anjana Das, Ranti Islam, and my trusted co-producer and dear friend, Oliver Brode. Last but not least, I'd like to thank my nephew, San Mufti. Again, I'm Bilal Qureshi, and you've been listening to The Big Ponder. You've been listening to The Big Ponder. This transatlantic podcast is brought to you by the Goethe Institute in collaboration with the Bertelsmann Foundation and Rundfunk Berlin-Brandenburg. Thanks to all our friends on both sides of the Big Pond that make this series possible.